1: get into it man you know uh-huh. like I, you know i'm the man don't you uh-huh. can i count it off uh-huh. one two three four you're listening to the church politics podcast with michael ware and justin gibboni where you can get in-depth political analysis from a christian worldview transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square
0: I'm in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm this is the Church Politics podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Uh, Justin, uh, you know, I thought this was going to be uh, the first week that um, you know I was going to be respectful and you know keep down my emotions, not bring up the Buffalo Bills at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, but 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 then th- then they won in the in the final minutes, and so I just got to say we're undefeated, baby.
1: You are undefeated. <laughs> And I'll say this: despite your ranting and raving, I wasn't really impressed by their other wins, uh, but I was impressed by this one. Uh, th- this is this is a big win. I'm, I'm gonna give you your proper's on that one, and uh, enjoy it, man. You got you got what a week to enjoy. Who they got next? Oh. You know, I, you you just gotta look for the Patriots on the calendar, and then you, then you
0: know it doesn't matter that Brady's not there anymore. They. Uh, they have our number, so that should be coming up soon. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, what, what do you think about the Heat?
1: I mean, they're scrappy, man. You can never count a scrappy team uh, out. Uh, I'm not generally a fan of the uh, the Heat, but by default, and being a Laker hater, <laughs> um, I will be rooting for the Heat. Um, yeah. so I hope I'm the best.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, it reminds me it's almost like a throwback you know championship where you would have like you know the team with the big name on it uh with you know the mvp of the league going off against like a uh you know a well-rounded scrap you know it's like bulls pistons it's like i mean i guess the pistons had but you know it's it's like uh, uh i kind of i kind of like that it's not you know lebron versus uh, uh versus uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess LeBron's on the West Coast now. You know, LeBron versus uh, Giannis, or uh, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be interesting to see a series like uh, like that. Yeah, uh, hopefully, so it's I'm, entertaining.
1: I'm really, that's what I am looking for. Hopefully,
0: it's yeah, entertaining. for sure, for sure. Uh, w- we got obviously a face-off. Uh, this week, uh, the first presidential uh, in politics, the first presidential debate, and then uh, we saw over the weekend. Uh, President Trump actually move forward and nominate uh, uh, Amy uh, Judge Amy Coney uh, Barrett for the open Supreme Court seat. So, so we're gonna go through this similar to how, and would encourage folks to go back and listen to the episode. We got really positive feedback on it uh, on uh, Kamala Harris, and we're gonna go through this in similar way we went through. Joe Biden placing uh, Harris on the ticket, which is to talk about sort of what criticisms of Barrett are are fair and what criticisms uh, are unfair or or sort of shouldn't be on the table. Uh, I, I will say, you know, there's there's a, a bit of me, Justin. Uh, you, you know, the reporting when Trump picked Kavanaugh over Barrett um, in some outlets was. That Trump didn't. He couldn't connect with this this woman who you know was a mother of seven and was very religious. uh, That that he just he just couldn't. uh, He sort of hit it off with her, and they didn't have great rapport. And she seemed to be pretty sort of professional, and not sort of let down her guard in the Oval. That was some of the reporting. Uh, about when they met and and so there was a bit of me that thought that uh you know m- maybe that's true and maybe he just doesn't like her maybe he's maybe he he doesn't think she's uh she's someone that he resonates with for a whole bunch of reasons but uh and i thought maybe, maybe he'll disappoint social conservatives here but he moved forward with the nomination that made sense politically and and made sense in terms of uh, in terms of sort of his political base, uh, and we saw, I-, I think, the best side of the nomination this past weekend. I thought Judge Barrett presented as not not just a you know a competent you know legal mind uh, as as much as you could do that in a rose garden ceremony, but gosh, a potent sort of political force. I was watching that press conference thinking. She makes Trump look better <laughs> than, than Trump ever could. Uh, and so l- l- let's let's start with unfair criticisms of, of Barrett, and then we'll move on to sort of what should be on the table. There's been a lot of discussion uh, leading up to this last week. It's not often that these nominations are the person that people had been talking about for the whole week leading up. So we actually have more of a preview of what the conversation about her is going to be uh, Justin, what have you heard, or what's been sort of hinted at that you think is not fair game for Democrats and others who who uh, want to push back on this nomination?
1: Yeah, uh, and I'm glad you brought up the last uh, the the episode that we did on uh, Kamala. I think that was a really a really good episode and helped people think through this in a way that wasn't as partisan but more of an objective way, regardless of where you land. Uh, so again, I would, I would encourage everybody to go listen to, the, to that again. Um, and yeah, I've, I've heard some unfair criticism, but let me, let me start by this, saying this. We all know that this is a, a moment of great consequence. Uh, it would be irresponsible for anybody to downplay this moment, even if it helps their narrative. Um, last, you know, last week, I talked about why I thought the Republicans, uh, why I thought what they were doing was in bad faith. Uh, I maintain that position. Uh, I have heard conservatives who want uh, ACB on the Supreme Court. I've heard them justify this move by saying, hey, we know McConnell said that uh, the Democrats shouldn't do this. But, um, you know, politicians say a lot of things and ultimately uh, the Republicans have every right to do it. And by the way, Democrats would do the same thing. Uh, I think that is a really lame and base justification uh, for what's happening. Um, The assertions and arguments that our leaders, especially someone in in, uh, Mitch McConnell's position, you know, the arguments that they make matter, um, and especially when it's something that's this big and that'll have this big of an impact on the discourse. So I do want to start off kind of with prefacing it that way. Um, You know, other people have even said that, yeah, McConnell said that, but that's when the the you know the president the party of the president and the party of the senate and who were, who was running the senate was different and this i mean was yeah it was different and this time the president and the the republicans are are in the white house and they're in uh the, they are running the senate so this is a different instance and really that's just you know distinction without difference the the idea was that when it's in an election season the people should make the choice And that's not what's happening right now because the circumstances have changed in one party's favor. And let's just call it what it is. Right. But to your point, the reality is that this is happening and we need to deal with it. Uh, And just like when we went through this unfair and unfair exercise with Kamala Harris, I do want all the listeners to I think it's important for you guys to realize that everyone is subject to critique, uh, that everyone has to be subject to this kind of criticism when they're reaching for such a high level position of authority when it comes to public service. We like, and even me, you know, we all like to try to protect the, the leaders that we like from criticism. Uh, but, I, but I'll tell you this, honestly, the scrutiny of campaigns, the scrutiny of these hearings serve a critical purpose in democracy. Uh, so you cannot be afraid, you, even if you like somebody They have to be exposed to this type of critique and analysis because the consequences are are too serious to not have them, you know, go through this type of scrutiny. Now, when it comes to what I think is off limits, I would say, and we said this last week, her religion, number one, Uh, there should not be any conversation about her being an orthodox Catholic uh, in any way that that paints it as negative. Uh, even the religious groups that she's been in, I think those are just off the table and that's really part of the constitution, All right. Those things, your religion uh, and how you worship is not relevant to whether you should be on the Supreme Court or any uh, United States court, point blank. And so those conversations shouldn't be happening. The other thing I would point out is, is her children. I don't, I don't think her children should come into this conversation either. And what we've kind of been seeing on social media is, Progressives seem to be going out of their way to make sure that no one has anything good or warm to say about uh, ACB. Um, you know, again, it's it's like, you know, don't you dare acknowledge any connection, any compassion or approval towards her and her family. Right. Uh, and this is really just the you know, kind of the mob mentality of politics that we see on both sides. That's the enemy. And we can't allow the enemy to be humanized in any way. Well, let me say this, whether you want ACB on the court or not, humanizing her and treating her family uh, fairly should not impact, you know, whether you want her on the court or not. Uh, That that should be something that's completely aside from the fact from what we're talking about. And one one unfair criticism that I saw, even though it wasn't necessarily direct, came from uh, Ibram uh, Kendi, who is the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, He had some interesting words to say in relation to cross-racial adoption. Um, Now, again, he he said, you know, he wasn't necessarily directing this towards uh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, who has two children that she adopted um, from Haiti. But here's what he said in regard to cross-racial adoption and what that means uh, about being racist. Uh, Some white colonizers adopted black children. They civilized these savage children. In superior ways of in the superior ways of white people while using them as props in their lifelong pictures of denial while cutting the biological parents of these children out of the picture of humanity. Um, that's a strong quote. Uh, I'll say this. Generally, I, I think I think Kendi has some important things to say in general. Uh, there may be some truth to the historical statement that he made. But in this instance, Mentioning ACB and colonizers using their children as props with no supporting evidence uh, is not cool. Um, These are real kids. I think we have to keep that in mind. Uh, She's committed her life to raising them and loving them. Uh, And so that's just that's just a bad look. I think we could have done without that comment. Now, what someone would say on his behalf, and I've heard this argued, is that he was responding to people saying she can't be racist because she. Uh, has two black children, um, and that may be a far-fetched statement, but it just goes to show that you don't need to respond to every statement either. Uh, to to connect what what she's doing, you know, to ne- connect what she's doing to to colonizers and uh, you know all this other stuff is just you know it's out of context. It's not helpful to the conversation. I, so I think we would have done better to not have that comment out there. Now, I will say this. I do think it's good to see that the Biden campaign is avoiding the attacks on her family and religion. Uh, We can't say that's true for progressives in general. Um, I think some have have gone on attack and then they've kind of hid behind the line. Well, we wouldn't attack uh, her just because she's Catholic, because the Democratic candidate for president is Catholic. Uh, And I don't I, I see where they're going with that, but I don't really think that's a strong argument. Biden is Catholic. Biden has said that he's Catholic and he, th- and he said that he takes his faith seriously. But the truth is still that he's pretty much conceded on the issues that conflict with secular progressivism. So it counts, but it's not the same thing. Uh, progressives are always cool with those who are willing to make their religion progressive friendly uh, to make it almost a, a, a brand of progressivism. Um, and he wouldn't be I don't think he would be the, the, the nominee if he hadn't done so. Uh, so I don't think, you know, they can hide behind that as they attack her on religious grounds. Um, and we'll just see, Michael. I don't know that progressives can resist coming at ACB in the wrong way. I do. Again, I don't you know, she's the the mentee of uh, Scalia, who was a, a giant when it came to jurisprudence but way too conservative, you know, for, for someone like me. So I would probably rather have someone else uh, in that seat or be the nominee. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's okay to come at her and show all this disdain for Orthodox religion, religion. Uh, and so I hope that uh, more progressives will follow the Biden campaign's lead and stay away from the religion, stay away from the family stuff. Cause it's just not helpful. There's enough fair criticism to, to go uh, on that we don't need the other stuff. And we'll discuss that next.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's good. And I, I, actually, you know, don't have, I think you, you laid out the, 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 the main areas, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd add, and it's related to the kids uh, question. I, there, there have been some folks raising things like, how is she going to take care of her children? If she's a Supreme court justice, um, So, you know, family in general should be left off the off the table for uh, for uh, for the hearings and for uh, these these kinds of uh, attempts to sort of criticize her. I mean, I think Jessica, what what we what what we know is going on is, you know, this is about driving down, you know, as as, you know, you'd say driving down uh, or driving up her negatives. Uh, If folks feel like they uh, politically need to knock her down lest she, uh, you know, provide Trump with some kind of a boost. And and my just thought on that would be one way to do that is to is to keep the focus on Trump. Like what one one way one way to do that is to just make clear that this entire as you stated that this entire process is unfolding in this way, in a contradiction to what he and and others suggested, you know, three and a half years ago, b- because Donald Trump doesn't really care much for uh, norms and for uh, and for uh, holding the country together. To be frank, so so that's what that's one thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is uh, we need to be really careful about the the fallout of. Putting so so right, you laid out the it's it's unethical in in the first order to to be uh, uh, to be criticizing uh, her for her faith practice as a part of this. I think that's right. As a second order and sort of as a as a consequential order, we got to be really careful. Uh, And what I'd advise progressives to be really careful about putting issues on the table in this instance, because it's to your benefit uh, without understanding that you put them on the table for every instance that if you're going to bring up her faith practice, if you're going to bring up, if you're going to send investigators out to her religious community and all this kind of stuff, which that I'm assuming is going on, but, but I don't want to claim that. I, I don't know that as a, as a fact. Um, But uh, uh, clearly there have been reporters who have been investigating her 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 religious community. That is a precedent that will uh, hold up uh, for uh, nominees of different religious backgrounds and different political backgrounds. And so uh, we got to be real careful about about that in the current instance and, and also be careful about it, having an eye at what could come down the road. You know, Justin, it's it's um, the the last thing I'd say is, you know, I I am sensitive to arguments that that she's sort of made her faith. uh, uh, She she has uh, spoken about her faith in relation to her her job um, uh, into her her role as a judge. Look, I think that there are questions that could be tailored by senators on the Judiciary Committee that would not be a religious test, and that would be proper in sort of, um, you know, I think a a question, you know, how uh, does your faith influence your role as a jurist and how? Uh, You know, I think a question like that is fair game. I think what you raised and what we know from the hearing three years ago, it is doubtful that uh, there will be the discipline or the interest in keeping it to those kinds of uh, those kinds of proper questions already, Senator uh, Maisie Hirano, who you would think, given that, you know, in part, her comments were um, the first time Barrett was up for her current seat on the appeals court. It was Hirano and Senator Feinstein, uh, Feinstein her, who, whose comments were uh, part of what Sort of made this whole thing a live wire. Senator Hirano was one of the main sort of sort of folks pushing improper religious questions, and she she seemed to she seemed to be sort of right back to that on 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 Twitter, not making sort of the exact same comments, but making Barrett, here's Senator Hirano, Barrett has an ideological agenda she won't acknowledge and an express willingness to overturn Supreme Court precedent. An ideological agenda she won't acknowledge. What? What? What does tell us? Tell us more, Senator Hirano, about about what this ideological agenda is. That that's this secret ideological agenda. I, I mean, this is that's language that's ripped like right out of this sort of the know nothing era. Uh, and there are all sorts of defenses you can come up for. Oh, that I wasn't talking about our Catholic faith. I was talking about our judicial philosophy that you won't own up to. Uh, I think there's just a lot of doubt that Democrats are going to be disciplined enough to 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 not say something that ventures into uh, the kind of anti-religious territory that we're we're concerned about. Uh, and I guess I have one more thing to say, which is that the other thing folks should be look out for. And I'm very sort of sensitive to all kinds of maligning of religion. Uh, Also, uh, also, if you're that way, if you're like me, also be aware of the fact that uh, a major goal of Republicans uh, and conservatives throughout this whole thing is going to be to lift up and highlight and uh, generalize any sort of improper criticism of Barrett As something that is ubiquitous, A, and B, that represents the entire Democratic Party. So actually, Josh, uh, Senator Josh Hawley uh, did this over... Over the weekend, he um, he tweeted, 65 million American Catholics are going to be very interested to learn that Joe Biden's Democrats think they can't be trusted to serve as judges or in public office if they're too Catholic. Democrat bigotry on full display with Amy Coney Barrett. So, right. So, he, he first of all, he says Joe Biden's Democrats because uh, he needed to bring Joe Biden into it, even though Joe Biden hasn't said anything that even approaches what he's suggesting Democrats have said about Barrett. And then number two, uh, he doesn't name a Democrat. There's no citation. There's no, he's not pointing to any colleague um, and replies in a conversation. He did point back to three years ago and Feinstein and, and Hirano's comments, but, but it, it, it's, it's, it's vague. And it's, these are what all Democrats are saying. So also folks be, be wary of, Making sure you're you're if something happens uh, uh, over the next few weeks where you're reading quotes from somebody who said something about Barrett, try and look up the video. Try and make sure you're getting the full context. Don't forget we're in the middle of a presidential election, and from all sides, uh, this nomination is going to be played for not just sort of judicial politics, but but. I'd say primarily for the sake of presidential politics. Uh, Justin, anything to add before we before we go to break? No, I think you got it.
1: Uh, again, uh, just make sure that not only are you um, kind of weighing in with fair criticism, but maybe that you question people who aren't being fair in their criticism if you're in a conversation with them. Yeah,
0: that's good. Okay, when we get back, we're going to talk about um, what, what should be uh, a part of the Senate's advise and consent uh, role, what, what should be on the table when it comes to the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, just in, in the last segment, we talked about sort of what should be off the table when it comes to uh, Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and uh, the, what we're going to see unfold in the Senate and in public discourse uh, in the coming weeks. What should be on the table? What What is fair game for considering a nomination of, of this magnitude?
1: Yeah, good question. Um I think, you know, for a lot of people, uh, this is big for a lot of progressives. Uh, the question of Roe versus Wade, the whole abortion conversation, I think she's going to be questioned and should be questioned on, you know, how she views that precedent uh, and how she views precedent in general. And so questions about Roe versus Wade and, and how she she may uh, come down on that, although I doubt she's going to commit to anything. That's a fair question in in this circumstance. Uh, I'll tell you my biggest worry and, and where I hope she does get questioned is uh, when it comes to the Affordable Care Act, uh, which really has been, it seems to me, Biden. The Biden campaign has focused in on where she may land there. Uh, I am not comfortable with the court having such a big role when it comes to health care policy. And I think, you know. She needs to be questioned on the you know, kind of the court's role in those rulings and how much the court should weigh in. It seems like Chief Justice uh, Roberts agrees with me, at least based on his last ruling that basically sustained the ACA's central provision, that this just isn't necessarily the place where the court should be really uh, weighing in and creating the policy or, you know, changing the entire healthcare policy that the government has from their seat, from, you know, the judicial branch. That is another fair question uh, that I think she should be asked and and is very consequential. Uh, and so I hope that she is asked some really pointed questions in that regard. Some other issues that I think have to come up is discrimination cases, how she's weighed in on some discrimination, discrimination cases, voter rights cases. Uh, there's you know, she's had some uh, in my understanding, she's had some rulings and some some thoughts on that that can that should be come into question in these hearings and also things like immigration. These are questions that should be asks, asked, asked. Uh, for someone that's going into such a position and is going to be there for a very long time. Uh, and so that those, those will be my focus, especially when it comes to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you know, should the you know, should folks be weighing in from the Supreme Court on something that's policy and really should be left to the legislative branch? I mean, you can always try to find kind of a constitutional issue within those, you know, within those major um, pieces of policy. How much should they be weighing in? I'm hoping, you know, what The position that Justice Roberts has taken, Roberts has taken is the one that that kind of leads people. Uh, The other thing that I've heard, though, and I'll let you get to your 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 criticism, uh, what you think is fair is, you know, Dems are basically asking her uh, that if she's uh, selected to recuse herself from any case dealing with the election. Um, I don't think that's going anywhere. I think, uh, look, Trump nominated her, but it's not like she worked on his campaign. I don't see a conflict of interest that rises to the point where she would have to recuse herself. Look, she's taken an oath, and I think we have to trust that she'll abide by it. But once they have her in that hearing, there are some questions that that, that I hope they they ask. What about you? What, what are some questions you want to hear?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think the main thing that sticks out um, when – and this isn't so much to the topic, but just for our listeners, you know, one thing that you should hear when Justin's talking is the fact that so many issues come before the Supreme Court, and I just want to remind: so so often the discourse, particularly among sort of conservative Christians, pretends like these justices ought to be evaluated only on the basis of one or two issues and i i i just you know listen to justin rattle off uh, uh what what he did it's so important to remember that the supreme court's going to be decide going to be deciding and does decide uh issues that uh, affect every facet of life and affect the vulnerable in many different ways and as christians we ought to be uh thinking in a holistic manner and approaching things from a holistic manner uh and and so so that 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 would be one thing i'd say to 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 fair criticisms um, you know i i do think uh or, or sort of fair questions that should be on the table you, you know i'd say uh, you you said several of them i do think the question of what she'd rec- if there's anything she she'd recuse herself of is 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 a fair le- legitimate uh, question. Uh, I also think asking her to describe the, the, the process she went through in the cases she's decided in her three years on the appeals court. W- what I don't think is fair to, to go back to the segment, I've seen some of this already, is folks saying, you know, she decided against this issue. Therefore, she's bad without knowing any details of the case. Uh, We talked about this actually a bit with Catherine uh, in the Kamala Harris episode when we were talking about Harris as a prosecutor, this idea that lawyers and judges, those involved in the legal system uh, are not politicians deciding uh, or at, at their best are not politicians deciding like what's the best outcome in it in a case for. Sort of my vision of the world, but what does the law call for and so i I'd love she has only been on the appeals court for three years. I think it's fine for folks to to prosecute that and sort of uh, mine whatever they can from. Uh, the decisions she's made, to the extent that sort of broad principles that she's outlining as she makes the case for a nomination have been contradicted by decisions she's made, asking her to explain those. I think, I mean that that's what that's what a hearing is uh, is for. Uh, and, and then uh, just the last thing I'd say, you know, just um, and it's related to the recusal question, uh, is really drilling down on her independence and the level of independence that she would have on a court when she may be deciding, uh, issues that are, uh, very relevant to, uh, Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, this is obviously a question that every judicial nominee has to answer. every, every, uh, every justice on the Supreme court has been nominated by a president. Um, and, uh, they've all had to go through questions, uh, that they will, they don't feel indebted to, uh, the person who nominated them. And I, I think that's, that's fair, uh, game as well. Uh, and, and then, you know, she, questions about political affiliations, uh, she's had, she, she has openly referred to herself, um, as coming from a different political background than, uh, liberal justices, not just a different judicial philosophy, but she's been open about sort of her politics and so mining through that as well. I think the fact of the matter, Justin, is the nomination process has so devolved over the last last several decades that I think the thing that I'm not hearing a lot of people say, but which everyone knows, is that these sort of things have turn into reality TV shows for a while now. And the fact that we have one now weeks out from a presidential election, that we're going to be seeing hearings literally, you know, less than 20 days from a presidential election likely. Th- th- this is not going to be sort of a rigorous above board sober analysis of Amy Coney Barrett's record as a judge. <laughs> um, th- th- that's what we, we'd, we'd like to see. That's what a lot of people can say they'd like to see. Uh, th- there's no sort of recent history that would suggest that, especially in these circumstances, and all the animosity, some of it legitimate, as you noted, that that this is even happening, that we're going to see some kind of Uh, Above board, sober analysis of Barrett's record. This is going to be a political dogfight. There are reports out already that uh, Democrats plan to give Senator Harris the stage in the in the hearing process. And so we're going to have the the uh, the running mate of the Democratic nominee interrogating the the Supreme Court justice uh, nominee of the president. I mean, th- this is not going to be a uh, a ideal prototype
1: process for for Amy Coney Barrett, even if she does get on the court. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's right. And uh, so we'll see what happens. I think it would it would do uh, both parties good to keep this professional. But as you pointed out, we won't hold our breath. Yeah.
0: All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about pretty fascinating article from uh Steve herndon for the new york times on what's unfolded in police reform conversations in minneapolis uh over the last several months this is the church politics podcast All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, for the closing segment, we wanted to discuss this article in the New York Times with the headline, How a Pledge to Dismantle the Minneapolis Police Collapse by Acid Herndon. This article walks through uh, uh, what happened politically on the ground in Minneapolis um, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, principally an effort by primarily two activist groups to form a pledge and to pressure Minneapolis city council officials and others to take a pledge to defund the city's police department. It was a pledge that uh, nine members of the 13-member city council uh, agreed to, a uh, you know, majority, uh, a clear majority. But over the last several months, many of the council members who took the pledge have been saying that they One said he took the pledge in spirit, but not by the letter. Uh, Another suggested that they took the pledge because they thought it was the best way to hold the city together, not because they actually agreed with the policy. But they thought if if we don't answer the demands of activists now and figure out how to deal with it later, then things are only going to get worse in the city. Um, The article is... Uh, fascinating for so in so many ways uh, and in so many ways that we talk about quite often on this podcast, I, just, I have, I have quite a few thoughts, but, uh, but interested in turning it over to you, what, what were your main takeaways from this article? What lessons do you think are, are there? Uh, what, what, what did you get out of this?
1: Yeah. Uh, I would just mention that, you know, once this pledge was taken, uh, it was followed by a surge of violence in the city. Um That once this pledge was taken, many longtime leaders in the black community said that they weren't even consulted on the pledge, uh, even though it was their neighborhoods that they've been serving for a long time. That would pay the price. Um, And many of these people have said they they for for the longest time have been in favor of more police, but with better training and with more accountability. Very different from what some of these activists are are, uh, advocating for. Uh, And at the end of the day, Michael, this is just another example of poor governance. I I think these council members were being uh, very irresponsible. Uh, These council members don't seem to understand how to deal with transient causes. Now, that does not mean that the cause of police reform or the cause of criminal justice reform is transient or unimportant. But some of the ways that these folks are trying to handle it, I don't think is going to be lasting. Uh, We are looking at people that got caught up in the moment and made some serious commitments without counting the cost. And as a leader, you always have to be able to count the cost and see past the moment. Uh, They seemed from reading the article and I would invite everybody to read it. Don't just take my word. uh, They seemed more interested in protecting their progressive brand than doing the due diligence necessary to protect the people. Um, and now we see them backtracking, talking about I, I you know, I, I signed on in, in spirit uh, or saying, you know, uh, that defund the police was up to interpretation, which is true. But guess what? It's your job to get clarity before you make a pledge. Um, yet, you know, someone else saying, you know, it was a vague in endorsement and I thought it was about a police free future, not doing anything right now. All these are cop out. Right. Right. The people who went along with who went along with what people were screaming at them and didn't think it through or thought it through and just hope hope that people would forget or whatever, you know, whatever happened. It's just not sound governance. Um, I'll say this. Elected officials should always lend an ear to committed activists. But even as an advocate myself, a leader has to be ready in certain times to tell activists no when those activists opinions or prescriptions aren't in line with the people. All right. The other problem that we see here, and I mentioned it earlier, was kind of a product of lack of clear leadership when it comes to these activist groups, these newer activist groups. Right. Uh, There are several definitions. You know, there were several definitions of defund the police. Depending on who you ask, you got a different definition. Right. And that's Because of a lack of clear leadership. Like, who do I go to to know exactly what you mean by this? Right. And some of these folks by design have said we don't want leadership because the people we're going against like leadership. So we don't like leadership. Right. We want it to be wide open. Okay, well, when people don't understand what you're talking about or what you're really asking for, because there's 10 different people saying 10 different things, this is where you end up. Right. I think that the leaderless. um you know, I, I just think that the leaderless movement just doesn't make sense. Now, there's ways that we need to be more inclusive. There are ways that leadership can do a much better job within our institutions and be held accountable. But a, a movement without leadership just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I so, so I hope people are seeing the, that based on this. So I think there are some things that the elected officials could do better. There's some things these activists could do better. And, and let me add this to it. Some of these progressive activists. Many of whom are white, but even some of these uh, some of the black ones don't actually live in the city that they're advocating for. Don't actually have any ties to the grassroots and are really working off of academic theory and social media narratives. It's just real. So if if you know, for these elected officials to take two of these groups and not talk to the folks who've been doing this stuff in the community for a long time and getting their advice on it. Just doesn't make any sense, right? A lot of these folks don't actually know what the community wants, don't actually know what the community needs, or what the community is really going through. And if you're just basing it on somebody's identity because they look like this group and they ain't really been in the community like that, that's your mistake, right? Now, again, this isn't everyone. There's some there's some newer activists that are in the community that know what the community need, and I and shout out to them. But there's a substantial portion of folks who look the part, who say the right things, but have no connection to the community for real at all. And that's dangerous. Yeah. I mean, some of these quotes
0: are just uh, astounding. So uh, one person in uh, in leadership uh, who was trying to think about how to navigate the fact that they had signed the pledge quoted as saying uh, to. Technically, if we renamed the department referring to the Minneapolis Police Department, we'd we'd end it. <laughs> wow. Uh, in other words, you know, we, we, we took this pledge that uses language that frankly isn't wasn't. Well, <laughs> we, we signed a pledge that had vague language uh, or, you know, as, as I've argued before, de- defund is a word with a meaning. It's not something that folks invented and then get to get to say what they mean by it. Uh, I think, as I've said on this show before, when conservatives talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, there is no question that they're not talking about moving some funds around. They're talking about zeroing out funding. (laughs) That's what defund means. It means it means to uh, remove and prevent further funds from going to that that area, whatever you're talking about. And so all the word games that folks on the activist side play, that they think they're being, well, no one can exactly nail us down. We're like moving the Overton window. To the extent that that is true, it also provides the opportunity for those on the elected side to say, well, we had no idea what you were talking about in the first place. We we thought you meant this because you're being so loose with language, um, and so I mean I think th- th- there was so much conversation about how smart folks were being, and and look look how the conversations moved, and so and in some ways that's that's true, and uh, as you said, when it comes to some activists, I, th- I think there's been real thought that's been put into play about not just how. How you sort of get an initial surge, but how you move towards policy reform. But this this article lays out the ways in which it can go wrong. I mean, you you now have both elected officials and activists in Minneapolis. After, uh, in a in a liberal city, I mean, the liberal DFL party in in Minneapolis controls the vast majority of the city council seats. You should be able to get something done on the city level. And yet in this article, not only are there now concerns among activists that there won't be major, uh, that the MPD won't be completely torn down and built anew, which is what some of them were calling for. Now there are concerns that there won't be any significant reforms made at all because they kind of, they shot their shot. Uh, they, They didn't get these officials to commit to things that they they would actually do, but commit to slogans um, and emotive politics so that these city council members could... I mean, it was amazing reading these quotes, Justin, like, oh, I, ju- I just wanted, you know, my heart was with the protesters, so that's why I took the pledge. Well, this is the emotive politics that we've been talking about. That, that this is why we talk on this podcast about the fact that just because you're emoting, just because you're saying all the right things, uh, doesn't mean you're actually making progress for the people. Um, and so, yeah. So I, I I would urge folks to to read this article, particularly if you have an interest in advocacy. There there are some activists quoted in this article who I think provide really incisive, really constructive quotes here about what could have been done differently or. What was wrong about the method, methodology? And activism is difficult. You you learn as you go along, and you you figure out how to uh, how, how to better advance what you're trying to advance as you move forward. Th- this article, though, is one of the best I've seen in a in a major outlet of digging into a specific case, you know, a specific uh, issue and and a a time frame and. Getting into city politics in a really um, in, a, in a really compelling in some ways disheartening and cynicism inducing in other ways, yeah I felt hopeful uh, uh, reading this be- because of uh, some of the work that was being done on the ground because of some of the lessons learned but uh, yeah a, a truly truly interesting uh, uh, and compelling article from Herndon at the Times. Uh, Justin yeah, any but- any final thoughts?
1: Yeah, I would just say that, um, I think you make a good point at the end. There is a chance that these elected officials and some of these, uh, these activists learn from this, right? It's, it's a, right. it's a, uh, an expensive lesson to learn. Right. Um, but, yeah. but but I hope that they did learn and can do better because everybody makes mistakes. Everybody can get caught up in a moment or think they did the right thing and turn around and say, hey, man, that was actually wrong. So we don't want to condemn that, you know, condemn them to say, yes. oh, you're done. You should never be involved in this again. No, uh, just do it better next time. Because I, I do think there was a lack of thoughtfulness, um, a lack of sincerity for some of the folks, not everybody. Um, and then just a lack of due diligence um, to yeah. make sure was going in the right direction because you waste a lot of time, you waste a lot of resources and the people need folks to do their job in a better way. But let's hope they, they have a chance to do it better and, and get this right. Well, thank you for every, every thank everybody for joining us again. And camp as usual, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politics with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, man, camp. That Have a blessed boy, week.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.